I almost feel kind of bad that I got to preach this sermon that is less than beautiful compared to what we were just able to uh, sing and to do together, but such is the book of Judges, and that's where we're at. The book of Judges, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, is where we're going to be. Uh, this week, I have spent basically every free moment and then even uh, some other moments that I have trying to re- remodel a, a bathroom. Uh, I, and when I say remodel the bathroom, I mean like all of the bathroom, like, like every piece of it, which it's a small bathroom, but it's the, the sink, the plumbing, the flooring, the shiplap, or shiplap because we got we to gotta chip and Joanna the thing, painting, uh, the vanity, like flooring, all of it. Like all of it has, has to be, had to be, had to be done. It's been quite the uh, experiment for me. And when I say experiment, not experience, because I don't have a ton of experience. And so that means everything is an experiment for me. I'm trying to figure this stuff out on the fly. I've never done any of this stuff. Uh, and I know just enough to know that I don't know enough. That's basically where I'm at when it comes to uh, renovating this stuff, but I've been trying to, to do it all, and so I've gotten myself in trouble uh, uh, a few times, but uh, it's not been, uh, it's, it's, it's been, it's just been a lot the, this last week trying to get this together. I'll show you a picture that kind of encompasses my week. So do you see the, the, the two connectors right there, right? You see those two things that, that go together. Now, I'm sure that Lowe's has the part where, where, that, that will fix this problem for me, but the problem is Lowe's has it, and, and I don't. Uh, you see how close those are to being able to connect, right? You see how they're like right there, but not quite? That's, that's how this entire project is going for me. Like right there, but not quite, uh, which has led to 375 or so trips to Lowe's uh, to get things, and, uh, and I'm still going. So what I have found every time that I make one of those trips to Lowe's, every time that I walk in with this series of frustrations that I have had, every time I walk in and I, I'm thinking to myself, this probably shouldn't be this hard. This probably shouldn't be this way. There's probably a simpler solution to this that I'm just not thinking of. I'm probably overthinking all of this. Why do I have to do it the hard way? What's the easy way? Let me do that the first time, not the third time, and then this would be done. Like that's the the constant refrain in my head for the last probably uh, four days trying to figure this out just on repeat. And I'll be honest, a lot of the same thoughts go through my head whenever I read this text in the book of Judges. This constant like this really doesn't have to be this hard. We don't need to overthink this. This is pretty clear and straightforward. Now, you may feel like that's a bit of a stretch to draw a bathroom remodeling project into the book of Judges, and maybe it is, but that's what preachers do. But I'm telling you, I think you're probably going to feel the same thing with me whenever you read this, like, this isn't that hard. We can, we can fix this. We can, we can solve this as we go through this, but the, the problem is we never quite get there in this story. It really does stay just as, as rough as, uh, as it is. And so uh, I'll warn you, just as I've warned you the last few weeks, it's a brutally sad story. Brutally sad, terribly dark, which should be familiar to the refrain that we've said almost every week with the book of Judges because that's what this book does. It does not let up. It gets darker and darker, rougher and rougher. The darkness just keeps coming. But part of what makes this story so dark, part of what makes this story so just frustrating and hard to read is that as you go through this, it, 
it just comes so close to being so beautiful until it's not. So let's just see if we can find the beauty for ourselves and then see what the darkness that is, that is there and the absence of beauty can teach us this morning. So Judges 11 is our text, and we're going to learn about a guy named Jephthah. Judges 11, chapter 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collect. That's the second time that they've said that, worthless fellows. I'm going to start using that, uh, that phrase. Worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we skipped over a couple of the judges in chapter 10. The text doesn't really tell us about these guys. It just kind of says they did their thing for, uh, for a few years and things went on. And we've moved on in the, in the, in the story just a little bit. And then the, the narrator decides he's going to land on this guy Jephthah because there's a story, there's something for us to learn from his, uh, from his story. And so we meet this next main character in the book and, and really it starts with his backstory. And his backstory is really the backdrop for the rest of what we're going to study uh, this morning. To know Jephthah, you need to know, you need to know this part of his story. He's a fighter. He's a powerful warrior. But he's also the son of a prostitute. And when he was young, it doesn't say how old, but when he was younger, his, his, his mother's and father's sins cost him dearly. As his father continued to have uh, children with his wife, it meant that these new half-siblings to Jephthah looked at Jephthah not as, uh, as, as part of the family, but instead as a threat to their inheritance. And so these brothers and sisters basically went to Jephthah and said, listen, I don't know what the deal is between, uh, with, with, with you and kind of where you came from, but here's what we know. You're not part of the family anymore. You're out of here. Go away, get out, you are cast out, you are banished from this family and from this house. They kicked him out. So this leads to to him fleeing from his home and living essentially out in the wilderness by himself. His his mom not in the picture, his his dad's family kicked him out, he's young, and there's no orphanage for him to go to, there's no kind of like like home for, for boys for him to go to, he just simply goes away. So he goes out and he goes to the, the, the wilderness and he's, he's, a, he's living essentially by himself in the school of kind of hard knocks, just figuring out how to get by. He goes to this, this land of Tob, but it's not really like a city. It's really just kind of a, a general area that is out there. And so he's kind of by himself out in the wilderness. Evidently, he has some leadership skills because he kind of becomes a gang leader uh, while he is out there. It says that, that he gathered these worthless fellows uh, around him, and, and so they, they all kind of, all these other outcasts kind of rally to him. They see him as he grows and as he gets older and as he starts to make him a name for himself out in the wilderness, they start to gather around him. And, and listen, you don't, you don't go out to the wilderness with a bunch of outcasts and become their leader because you're a nice guy. You become their leader because you are ruthless. You are skilled, and you're charismatic. You don't rule the wilderness by showing up and saying, hey guys, you rule the wilderness whenever you show up and you say, this is how it's going to be, and I'm going to make sure that it's that way. And he basically becomes kind of a gang leader out there. 
You rule it by doing whatever it takes and letting everyone else know that you're willing to do whatever it takes. So what does this outcast, illegitimate son of a prostitute have to do with the history and the future of Israel? And what does he have to do with us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's keep going and see how he kind of figures into the history of Israel. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and, the, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, so this is, this is back in our regular refrain, a regular refrain the, uh, the Ammonites have now sought to take over the, the people of Israel to bring them into slavery, and they realize, the elders realize they've got a problem. And so they go to Jephthah and they say, come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me? And do you not drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So quite the turn in the story here. Israel realizes that it's in big trouble and the elders gather around together. They gather around the table and they start looking at each other and they say, what are we going to do about this? They are set to attack us. We have no leader to defend us. We have no army set to uh, defend us as they attack. What are we going to do? And they all kind of look at each other and they, they, they say, you know what? I, I think actually, I, I think we both, we all, we all know what needs to happen. And they realize that they need to go to Jephthah. They need to go and they need to ask him for his help because they are right back in the same place where they've always been with the Ammonites over them. They're right back in the same position being enslaved by the gods that they had worshipped. What they thought was going to bring them happiness, what they thought was going to bring them joy, has only turned them into slaves. Just a reminder, again, we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. This is how sin always works. A promise of pleasure that never fully delivers, followed by a lifetime of chasing after that promise that they never received. It reminds me of that, that song, all I have is Christ. We haven't sung that here in a while, but we've sung it here before. And there's a, there's a verse in there that says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. And that has been the story of Israel over and over and over on repeat for generations now. This is where Israel was at, and they, they look around at each other and they say, how do we get out of this mess? We're about to be attacked by the Ammonites. What are we supposed to do? We need someone that can go and fight for us. And then someone around that table of leaders, someone around that table of elders, probably some of them, in fact, brothers or sisters of, uh, of Jephthah himself, they look around and they say, well, I know a guy who's really good. I know a guy who's really, really good, but we kind of ran him out of town. He's not here to help us right now, but I know, I, know where to, I know where to find him. So they look around at each other. They kind of draw straws for who's going to go out and find him in the wilderness and say, hey, we need you back. They show up, and Jephthah is rightfully skeptical. They show up and they say, hey, Jephthah, we need you to come and to be a fighter and a warrior on our behalf. And not only that, we need you to lead us. 
And Jephthah's like, I don't understand. You kicked me out, and now you're bringing me back to be your leader? This doesn't make any sense to me. Are you sure that that's really what you want to do? So he kind of clarifies with them, and they're like, yes, absolutely. We realize that this is what we need to do. We're sorry we kicked you out. Our bad. But you're like a really good warrior, and that's really what we need on our side right now. Will you please come back and help us? Will you please come back and save us? Will you be our Savior? Because after all, you're known to be the ruthless kind of warrior that we need to defend us. So he says, all right, if you mean it, if you mean it, I'll come. But just know I will be your ruler if you ask me to come back. And they say, works for us. Come on back and save us. So he does. He comes and immediately he tells the, the, the king of the Ammonites and he starts kind of arguing with the king of the Ammonites and he says, hey, here's what I need you to do. Who do you think you are trying to fight and, and, and enslave my people, the Israelites? And kind of this dialogue begins between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites. And he says, why are you trying to do this? What are you doing? And, and what happens between verses 12 and 28, you can read them if you want, what happens between 12 and 28 is basically a history lesson that Jephthah gives to the king of the Ammonites. It's kind of diplomacy, kind of a history lesson, kind of saying this is how it is, this is how things are, 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 are supposed to be. And, and so they go back and forth, and really, long story short, what you find out is that Jephthah isn't backing down, and he will not tolerate the threatening actions from the king of the Ammonites any longer. So this is where we're at in the story. He comes in and he says, no, you're not doing this anymore. And this is where we pick up in verse 29. Judges eleven twenty nine. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed to Mitzpah and to Gilead, and from Mitzpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. So Jephthah wins the battle. He crosses over all these territories, takes the fight to the Ammonites, and right before the battle begins, he says, God, if you'll give me victory, then whatever comes out of my house, I'm not even going to choose it. You can have anything that, that comes out of the front door of my house as my thanksgiving offering for this wonderful thing that you've done by giving me victory over the Ammonites. He makes this vow to God, which uh, it, it, it seems to be a very worshipful response to, to winning the battle, or at least his, his assumption that he will win the battle. Kind of this way of saying, you pick it, I don't pick it, you take claim over any of it. Whatever comes out the door. On its surface, it's a noble action. It looks like Jephthah is very grateful to what God has done. He's wanting to show appreciation for what God is about to do, and then what God does do. But Jephthah's vow tells us a little something about him. He may know the history of Israel well. That's what most of uh, chapter 11 is about. It's about the history of Israel. But he doesn't know their religion or their, their offerings or their customs very well. As we'll see, his understanding of worship looks more like the religions that he witnessed around him out in the wilderness than it does what, what he would have observed in the temple had he been able to go with his family and see the, the worship at, at, 
around the tabernacle or or, uh, in town, if you've been able to see how Israel works, if you've been able to see this is how we're commanded to do things, if if he had grown up in a family where he could have been taught the book of Leviticus and what it looks like to worship God, then, then his vow would have looked very different. The vow that he puts forward, the vow that he takes on looks very much like the same kind of a vow that would be offered up to a pagan God. His worship doesn't look like the worship of Yahweh. It looks like the worship of Moloch and of the other gods in the area. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mitzvah. So he he, he received his victory. He shows up. He comes to his home at Mitzvah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Oh boy. It's hard for me even to read that. The scene is heartbreaking. A daughter ecstatic to see her father return from war comes out dancing and, and singing, celebrating that she, she gets to see her, her father at all, that he hasn't died in battle, but not only that, that he comes back as a, as a victor. But instead of him rushing to embrace her and saying, so glad to see you again, daughter, he falls apart, he melts, he falls to the ground, and he collapses, and he knows that if he fulfills his vow, then his only, his only child, his only daughter, must die. So what do we make of this scene here? What, in the, what is Jephthah supposed to do here? He can't break his vow, lest God be angry and Jephthah appear ungrateful, yet he doesn't want to kill his daughter. So, so he's kind of a, a, stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? At least that's, that's how Jephthah feels. And this is, wh- this is where I get here, like right here in this part, like how I started, like let's not overthink this, guys. This is pretty simple, right? The solution to this problem isn't that hard. Jephthah needs to get out of his vow, repent before God for the vow that he has made, and not kill his daughter, right? This is a simple answer to this question. But for some reason, Jephthah can't, can't get to this in his own head. He can't get to this place because he feels the vow he has made is completely unbreakable. He is convinced there's only one correct action here, lest he kindle God's anger. It's mind-boggling to figure out... What, what had to go through his head for him to get to this place? For us, we, we, cannot, we cannot even relate. But, but here's the thing. You see, Jephthah was kicked out of his house at a young age. He had made no pilgrimages to see sacrifices. He hadn't celebrated Passover with his family. He did not know how Yahweh worked. He did not know what worship should look like. He didn't know what his own nation and his own kinsmen did. Out in the wilderness, he he saw what worship looked like of these other gods. He saw how even other Israelites took on some of those same practices. And so for him, he was just doing what he had seen. He was just responding to God in the way that he had always seen other people respond 
to God. He had been discipled by the culture around him about what it looks like to worship God. And parents, make note of this. You may fail to teach your children how to worship God. The culture will not fail. They will not miss an opportunity ever. If you do not step in and teach them this is who God is, this is how God works, this is what he's about, the culture will teach them, rest assured, and it will not be the God of the Bible that they will teach them about. So out in the wilderness, he learned what it looked like to worship God, at least what he thought it looked like to worship God. And what did they do? They made vows. They offered sacrifices. They had to constantly try and appease their God and make sure that they do everything that they can to stay on their God's good side. This is what had to happen. They had to offer the sacrifices to appease the gods. And so long as they kept the sacrifices going, perhaps the gods wouldn't be angry. Well, now Jephthah has made a vow, and he knows that if he breaks that vow, he's in big trouble. Because certainly, at that point, the gods would be angry. Or at least in his mind, he thought God would be angry. You have to understand, this is how all little G-O-D-S gods, this is how they all work. All of them. This is how they demand to be appeased. In order to be happy, they constantly demand to be appeased. You believe they're there for your happiness, but in truth, you end up living to keep them happy. The God of money, success, sex, relationships, pornography, comfort, you think they are all there for your happiness, but they demand so much of you that you are consumed with either protecting the relationships and those little gods or getting more of them, more money, more sex, more porn, greater ease uh, of, 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 of your relationships, greater ease and, and comfort in your life. You, you seek after these relationships. You, you protect the relationships at all costs, destroying the rest of your life. You will do anything to get more or to protect what you have. This is how gods work. It's what they demand of us. Jephthah assumes this is how Yahweh works too. So he's in a bind. The wrath of God upon your head or kill your daughter? Which one do you do? Again, the the choice is clear for us. The ethics are not hard for us. But for Jephthah, he's broken. He must sacrifice his daughter like all the other religions around him would demand. Child sacrifice, though not like, like prevalent all over the place, was certainly common around there. Child sacrifice was, was not only not unheard of, it was, it was common, demanded by the, the, some of those religions around them. And so Jephthah is willing to do what needs to be done in order to appease God, at least so he thinks. Now, I'll make another note here just as, as a bit of a side. Some people believe that this, this sacrifice language is similar to, to, to Hannah in her prayer to have a son, where she devotes the son to God's service, that he, he's devoting him basically to the temple. So basically, uh, Jephthah's daughter, who sadly doesn't even get a name in this story, Jephthah's, Jephthah's daughter w- would have been given over to the temple, not killed, but she would have been like a burnt sacrifice, but instead she would have been kind of a living sacrifice, given over to the service of the temple. And I'll say this, it's possible that that is a correct interpretation of this story. That is possible. The language, if you stretch it a little bit, will allow that to be a possible interpretation. 
And other parts of the story actually make a little bit more sense if that is the correct interpretation. The problem is this interpretation didn't really come about until almost a thousand years after uh, the church was, was established. Like it, 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 in, the, in the scheme of things, it's actually a pretty new understanding of how to understand. So they went, the, church went, the church went a thousand years with this passage without that being the interpretation of it. Okay? So it's possible that that's what, what it is. Plus, the, the language, if you just take it as, it as it reads, it just lends itself to talking about child sacrifice, not, not religious service. So that's what I think is the, best, uh, the better interpretation here. But, but either one will still hold for, for the rest of what I want to draw out of this story. So whichever one you want to hold, the rest of what I'm going to say will, will kind of hold here um, and, and, and help to, to see what I think this story is trying to, to point us to. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But first, let's, let's, let's sadly see where this story goes. Verse 36. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she says, you got to do what you got to do, dad. I understand. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. She said, just, just, just do this for me. Let, me. let me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. The whole idea here is she's not had a child. She's not gotten married. She's not had a child. It's, the only, it's Jephthah's only child. So she wants to weep for the fact that she has no, no generations to come after her. She had no family to care for and family to raise. She, she didn't have that, and she wants to be able to, 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 to weep for that. So that's the idea here. So she says, let me go up into the wilderness with my companions. And in verse 38, he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. It's brutally sad, terribly dark. She goes away to the mountains for two months to grieve with her friends, to deal with the fact that her father's vow has cost her the chance to live. Not only the chance to live, it, it, it's cost her the chance to be a mother, to raise a family. And she knows that as she dies, so does her father's family legacy and so does hers. Terribly sad. And I'll ask the question that I did last week. What do we do with this terribly sad story? Besides be like, okay, why do we read the Bible again? Like, what, what do we do in here? Why is it in here? Why did he skip over the other two judges and barely give them a mention and yet spend a couple of different chapters here on Jephthah? Why is it in here? If we do a little bit of work, we'll see, we'll, we'll see why, why I think this is in here, that this this had a chance to be a beautiful story. It had a chance to be something beautiful about redemption. And instead, it simply becomes evidence of the darkness of the book of Judges. What we have here, even though it's never explicitly stated, are two parallel stories that work together that point us to how things should work and how Yahweh actually does things. Not Moloch and these other gods, but how Yahweh actually does things. 
In, in, in story one, so, so follow me here, right here. This is the crux of everything. So if, if I've lost you, just come back to me here and, and, and follow me here. This is the crux of everything. In story one, Jephthah is cast out of his home for a sin and an action he had nothing to do with. He is punished and sent out into the wilderness for the sins of his father and his mother. After a period of time, Jephthah is approached and reconciliation is sought, repentance is confessed, restoration is reached, and they bring him back into the fold, into God's people. So, so, so follow him. He's sent out into the wilderness for his, the sins of his father, for a sin that he did not commit, but instead of being left in the wilderness, he is rescued, reconciled, redeemed, and brought back to God's people. Jephthah's story is a beautiful tale of grace and of justice, of not being forgotten or dismissed, of being welcomed back, welcomed back as a son from those that had cast you out. Story two, Jephthah's daughter is cast out of her home for an action that she did not commit. Like her dad, she had, she had done nothing. She had done nothing, just like Jephthah in, in the first story. Her father had brought this upon them. Nonetheless, she would receive the punishment, just like her father as a child. So for two months, she, two months, she, like her dad, went into the wilderness to grieve a life that was lost and a family that she never had. After a period of time, unlike her father, there is no repentance, no reconciliation, no restoration. Jephthah's story as a child and then as he grows older is, is tragic but beautiful. Jephthah's daughter's story never becomes beautiful. It ends in darkness and pain. It ends in the weeping of God's people for a woman that they never knew and a family that never was. Jephthah's story was beautiful, but hers never had a chance to be. Now, if your takeaway from this story is don't make dumb vows before God because you're going to have to keep them, that might be an okay application, like, okay, fine, take that with you. But I'm just telling you, you've lost the plot of Christianity if that's your takeaway. This story tells us of how God's grace works and what it should look like, how rescue should come, how pleasing God isn't about vows and proving your gratefulness to God. It, it is about something so much deeper and so much more beautiful. In the end, Jephthah's daughter is dead because Jephthah needed to add a little extra spark to his worship service. A little extra thank you to God offered in excitement. But all of that was rooted in a flawed understanding of who God is and how God works. He, do, he doesn't ask for, for child sacrifices to appease his anger. Jephthah assumes that's the case because that's what he'd seen from the culture around him. But that's not how Yahweh works. He longs to see repentance and redemption and grace. That's how his people are formed. Not by, by trying to appease his wrath by throwing some offering out there. Jephthah, though, didn't know that. I wonder, do you know that? How much of your life do you spend trying to make God happy with you? How much of your life do you, 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 make, do, do you spend trying to get God to be on your side? 
So that whenever you wake up in the morning, you don't feel that, that pit in your stomach, that, that weight on your shoulders that says, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I've harmed and I've hurt others. God, I need you to be on my side. What do I need to do for you? For some of you, that's why you're sitting in here this morning. Hopes that you'll make God happy with you because you showed up at church. That's not how God works. Did you know that if you are in Christ, God is already happy with you? You know the scene when Jesus is baptized and God's voice comes out and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He says that of you if you are in Christ. He looks at you and he says, in you I am well pleased. Now you and I both know that's absurd to say about ourselves. There's no way a perfect God could be well pleased in us. And that's true outside of Jesus. But in Jesus... That's what, that's, what, that's what God sees. That's what the Father sees on us. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he already does. Nothing. You see, we, like Jephthah, like Israel, were left alone in the wilderness. We weren't, we weren't brought back to die like Jephthah's daughter. We were sought after in the wilderness in our sin. And then God provided for us in abundance reconciliation and redemption. I love the poetry of Psalm 78. I'd like to read the whole thing here, but just for the sake of time, I'm just going to read a, a piece of this. Psalm 78, verse 13, the psalmist is recounting the history of Israel, and he says this, He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He splits the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them drink abundantly as from the deep he made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers as they walked in the wilderness god provided water that flowed like rivers and how did they respond verse 17 yet they they sinned still more against him rebelling against the most high in the desert they tested god in their heart by demanding the food they craved they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? They sinned against him. They demanded more and they doubted his goodness and his power. They said, can God really do this for us? And how did God respond? Verse 20, he struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And it goes on to recount the, 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 the manna that, that fell and the quail. And it goes on to recount the history of Israel. And all the times that the people of Israel failed and God delivered. Israel failed, God delivered. Israel was in the wilderness, God came to them in the wilderness, supplied for them in the, in the wilderness in abundance. The whole psalm keeps going on like this. He provided for them water, bread, and meat in abundance. He did indeed spread the table in the wilderness for Israel and for us. The, the story of Jephthah's poor unnamed daughter is heartbreaking. Especially whenever you set them next to each other. And you see the grace that Jephthah received and the reconciliation and the restoration that he received. But he never offers that again to his daughter. 
which is the point of the story. The writer wants us to see that it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to happen like this. It didn't have to work like this. God provided another way. He doesn't leave us in our wilderness, but he comes to our rescue. He seeks out our restoration, and he reconciles us to himself. Comes to us in the wilderness. And how does he do that? He does it all through his son, Jesus. I'll let Jesus explain how this works from John chapter 6, verse 30. John chapter 6, if you want to turn there, it should come up there. John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So they're coming to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, how can we know that you are the the Messiah, that you really are the one that was promised? And he says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said that, or Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So they're still, they're still living in the parable. They're still living in the figurative language. They haven't made that translation yet to say, oh, you're talking about yourself, Jesus. I get it. So what, what it says is that we're out in the wilderness and, and, and God provided, the, the, the Father provided for Israel in the wilderness, and now he says, now God will provide some, a, a bread that is everlasting, that, that, that never uh, goes away in your wilderness. And they're like, yeah, absolutely, sounds great. We'll eat this bread. So skip forward down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in, in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness. Apart from Christ, you are in the wilderness. You have no hope. You are looking around like the people of Israel saying, can God spread a table here? This place is barren. This place is empty. Can God truly give us a feast here? And God says, I can and I have and I've done it for all eternity through my son, Jesus Christ. This is the story of Jephthah. Provided for in the wilderness, not forgotten. It's the would-be story of his daughter that never was. And in that darkness, we can see the, 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 the kind of negative image of what it should have been. She should have been rescued. Jephthah should have fell on his face and said, God, kill me, not her. And Jesus says, God, kill me, not them. And he endures it for us. The bread of life. And that's only in Jesus that that happens. Will you pray with me? Father, the darkness of the book of Judges is so deep, it is so black that it's almost hard to read. It's almost hard to to stomach or to understand how it can be this way, how it can happen like this. Father, help us to see that that darkness is not there just to make us all wonder and be sad, but it's there to point us to the beauty and the light that is you. So Father, help us to see that and to see it well. 
Help us to see that Jesus is our only hope, the only bread that sustains, and that you have set the table in the wilderness for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.